women here at the Sydney Opera House. Um, my name's Monique Shafter. Um, I'm a reporter for 7.30 on the ABC, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here today with this lady. Um, before we get into it, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. It's International Women's Day on Tuesday, and in, in honour of that, this annual event provides an important platform for a range of diverse women's voices from around the world. Today, you're going to hear from the phenomenal intellectual powerhouse, Masha Gessen. Oh, that's a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> um, as I'm sure you people are aware, Masha is a Russian and American journalist, author and activist noted for her fierce opposition to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And in a country where Putin's enemies tend to wind up dead or in prison, that takes some guts. Marcia has written three books, a biography of Vladimir Putin titled The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, a book on Russian feminist punk protest group Pussy Riot, um, and most recently The Sinaev Brothers, The Road to a Modern Tragedy on the Perpetrators of the Boston Marathon Bombings. Um, Masha identifies as a lesbian. Hope you're happy for me uh, to. Uh, uh, like, I'm not sure actually. What? No, I'm queer. I no. I oh don't. really? Yeah. Okay. Prefer queer. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I prefer queer. Cool. All right. Good one. Um, and she's written extensively on LGBT rights and helped founded the Pink Triangle campaign. Um, she's. Okay, that's Wikipedia. Uh, let's stop. Not that one. Because most of that is not right. <laughs> Sorry. I'll get you to break yeah. this down for me. Okay. Um, just on the, um, the, the the gay side of thing, happy Mardi Gras. Uh, happy Mardi Gras to you. Is that, that is that something you like to say? Happy, happy Mardi Gras. We say, is, that, is happy, it a day? We or? say happy Mardi Gras, happy gay Christmas. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should also mention if you'd like to tweet along with this conversation, the hashtag is all about women, um, and there will be an opportunity for you to ask some questions to Masha at the end of our chat today. Um, but, yeah, seriously, Marsha, did you get to any of the Mardi Gras celebrations over the past I didn't, weeks? actually. Too busy uh, talking? Um, <laughs> yes, listening to myself talk. Um, no, there's a, I just got to Sydney last night, and there was a, a dinner for the speakers, which was incredibly fabulous. And then I passed out because I'm middle-aged. And right, right, right. <laughs> Um, the celebrations in Sydney at the moment are obviously a huge contrast to the current state of affairs in Russia. Um, in, in 2012, Moscow courts enacted a 100-year ban on gay pride events. Just how bad... Which, which is really interesting because, like, I really wondered why did the court not decide to ban gay pride in perpetuity? Like, what yeah, did why it... 100 years? It's, it's, I mean, I'm fascinated with the, by the psychology of that. I don't have an answer, but, like, what do they think? They think it's inevitable that in 100 years... Moscow will have to have gay pride. But at least they don't want to live to see it, is sort of the message. How bad is it at the moment for LGBT people in Russia? So what's happened in the last few years is that, um, I'm sure you've all heard about the ban on homosexual propaganda, which is really kind of a small part of, of what's happened. And what's happened is an anti-gay campaign by the Kremlin in which uh, the, the homophobia has become the cornerstone of Putin's politics. And, you know, other petty tyrants have chosen other things, uh, other minorities. We happen to be the one that Putin chose, and um, that's what it feels like. So the legislation is a small part of it. 
And also in a society like Russia, which is not a law-based society, legislation is not actually what, what, what has an impact on you. Legislation serves as a signal, it's a message. And the message is, here's a minority that is unprotected, that is in fact outside the law, and violence against which will be rewarded. So the biggest consequence of not just the homosexual propaganda law, but all these laws that haven't been passed but have been floated, like a law on removing children from same-sex families, and a law on banning coming out, uh, which is actually, it's, it's, it would be a ban on the outward expression of homosexuality. And it's interesting that the parliament took it up a couple of weeks ago. They didn't pass it, but they didn't pass it because they didn't have a quorum. Not a single person voted against it. 101 members of parliament voted for it and not one person voted against it. Just too many people were absent at that moment to pass it. But you don't have to pass it because it's Russia. So it's just, it's like transmitting the message. Uh, so the biggest result has been anti-violence. And there are all sorts of violence. And most of the people that we're seeing coming to the States, and I, 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 to the extent that I can, I try to help refugees coming over or asylum seekers coming over to the U.S., um, most of the people are uh, fleeing violence. You know, and basically the story is usually the same. It's usually young men. And they usually say, you know, I was just beaten up one too many times. I couldn't take it anymore. Right. Can you tell me about the Pink Triangle campaign or the significance of the Pink Triangle? We can update Wikipedia afterwards. Right. So there's no Pink Triangle campaign. Uh, Pink Triangle campaign was my little personal crusade um, because um, what had happened was that um, uh, I sort of woke up one day and realized that the bans on homosexual propaganda were not a joke. And I'd, I, I was really slow. Like Pussy Riot were much uh, more, uh, much smarter to this than I was. But I, I felt very comfortable. I'd been living there for 20 years. And um, I, uh, after coming back from, uh, from exile the first time, and uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd heard that there were some local municipalities that had passed these laws, and I thought that was really cute. And, uh, and then it was floated on the federal level, and then I realized, oh my God, this is actually uh, geared, targeted specifically at families. Mm -hmm. Because actually homosexual, propaganda of homosexuality is defined by the Russian Constitutional Court as the distribution of information that can cause harm to the physical or spiritual development of children, including forming in them the erroneous impression of social equality of traditional and non-traditional sexual relations. Right? So basically, if you, uh, you know, that's creating second-class citizenship. So if you read it, uh, as it's probably intended, if I didn't tell my children that we were inferior to the neighbors, then I was in violation. And, um, and so I, and I, I was a very public person in Russia. I was a very well-known journalist. And so I went on television and recorded uh, basically a PSA. And uh, this independent television station let me do that, in which I said, this is a fascist law. Um, these are pictures of my children. These are the, the, the three people that I'm supposed to tell that we're not, we don't have a right to exist. Um, if you disagree please put on a pink triangle. So that was the pink triangle campaign. Yeah. And then I, um, uh, I printed up 6,000 pink triangles, and they all went pretty quickly, which was really exciting. I felt like everybody was wearing pink triangles, but that was 6,000 people in a country of 142 million people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I ask, when did you realize you were gay? 
Um, so I don't actually think I realized I was gay. I, uh, I realized when I was 12, I think, um, that I was attracted to girls as well as boys. Okay. Uh, the fact that I was attracted to boys somehow didn't bother me at all. But, uh, but the fact that I was attracted to girls seemed like really bad news. Uh, so that's, uh, that's when I realized I was different. And where were you at that point? I was in Moscow, and uh, my, uh, my parents, it so happened a friend of theirs had given them a bunch of books that he, uh, he wanted to get rid of, and my parents shoved the books that they were interested in and put a box of books out on the balcony, uh, which they had no use for. And so, of course, I was interested in the books that they put out on the balcony. So in this, if you can imagine this like really dreary Eastern European apartment block, uh, concrete apartment block and this little tiny balcony and there's a box there and it's cold, it's winter. And I'm out there on the balcony leafing through these books and there's the penal code. And there was, uh, the sodomy law was in the penal code and it said you know, there was a three year punishment, imprisonment for consensual gay sex. And I realized that applied to me. I mean, it didn't actually, it was, it was for, only for men. Women were much more likely to end up in a psychiatric institution. But that was the message. The message was, you know, you're a criminal. Right. I think that, you know, it's, it's hard enough for young kids here to come out. I can't imagine what it's like for someone in the Soviet Union to be going through that. I didn't think that coming out was an option. I mean, uh, two years later, we emigrated to the U.S., and it's not like I was going to the U.S. and thinking, oh, well, I get there, and, you know, and I'll get to be out. It was, that yeah. was, I sort of buried that. Yeah. Um, and then I started meeting queer people. Queer people? Yeah. Cool. To what extent does your personal experience motivate what you do? I don't think it's possible to answer that question, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, like, uh, where, what else could possibly motivate what people do? I suppose choices, politics can motivate us, but if you know you're living through something, that really puts a fire in your belly. Right. I mean, I, th- I think I think a couple of things. Uh, one is having been uh, an emigrate twice, yep. uh, once as a kid and having no power over it at all, and just living through the trauma of it, without uh, having it also make me stronger in the process. Because I think now that I've done it twice, now that the second time I did it as a grown-up. And I watch my kids go through it uh, as sort of the powerless agents uh, in this in this setup. I realize how much better it was for my parents in some ways. I mean, I think the the responsibility was crushing, and and I can't believe they were so fearless or so reckless as 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 to step into the abyss of emigration. But I also realize that that it's very empowering because you can make that kind of decision. You can you can change your life. As a kid, you don't have that. Mm. All you have is just the, like the, you know, it's like a loss of innocence. So that, that's been really uh, helpful to me, both as a writer and, um, and as a reporter, but also as an activist. I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've, uh, I, I'm more of a, an agitator than, than an activist, actually. But as an agitator, I try to draw attention to, to refugee issues. You were 14 when your family left Moscow for the United States. What did they tell you was happening at the time? So my parents uh, had a very unusual policy for sort of the differently minded in the Soviet Union. Most parents tried to not tell their children uh, about their political views because they were afraid that children would blab, which I did. Uh, And... um, 
They're also afraid. Uh, they're, they're also worried that uh, uh, that sort of t- that telling uh, the kids something that was the opposite of what they were learning in school would be really difficult, mm-hmm. and it was. But my parents, I don't know what their logic was, but they just never subscribed to this idea that you should hide things from your children. So, from the time I was a toddler, I knew that they were involved in Samizdat, uh, self-publishing distribution. And I read whatever I could get my hands on, and as I, as I became a teenager, I read a lot. So in, in that way, it was sort of a seamless process. And, um, and when I asked my mother outright, you know, why we're leaving the country, she said, we live in a fascist state, and if uh, uh, we have options, our, one option is to sacrifice our lives to fighting the, this regime. We're not willing to do that. Uh, conformity is not an option. Another option is immigration. So we're choosing immigration because they're not willing to sacrifice our lives for the sake of this country. What was it like, um, your family is Jewish, what was it like being Jewish in the US compared to in Russia? So in, uh, I mean that was the reason we got the right to immigrate was because we were Jewish. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, and that was a large part of the reason my parents wanted to immigrate, because they had both, there was systematic discrimination against Jews in the Soviet Union. And my parents had both experienced it uh, in very traumatic ways. They had both been denied entry to the universities that they wanted to go to, even though they were eminently qualified. But uh, So it was made very clear to them that it was because they were Jewish. Um, and so, um, and that experience had been really painful for them as, as teenagers. And I know they really feared seeing me and my brother go through that. Uh, and we also, I faced a lot of harassment as a kid and that sort of thing. But also my parents had hit their glass ceilings as, 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 as Jews because you couldn't advance as a non-party member and as a, as a Jew. You, I mean, your options were really limited. So, uh, so my, my parents just wanted to go to a country where we wouldn't face that kind of discrimination. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there was an American movement for the freedom of Soviet Jewry, which some people even here probably know about, and um, uh, it was uh, it had been instrumental in getting the right to emigrate for Soviet Jews. But the whole sort of idea of that movement is we should give the Jews in uh, the Soviet, Soviet Jews a right, uh, an opportunity to come to this country so they can be Jews here in America and practice. And all we wanted was to not be Jews. You know, we had been discriminating. I mean, we had no religious practice. We had no religious identity. Uh, The only identity that we had was negative. It was because of the discrimination. Mm -hmm. So, like, we just wanted to not be Jews. Uh, And this clash just kept happening. People would come over. I mean, tens of thousands of people emigrated from the Soviet Union to the United States, and they would always be greeted by the local synagogue, and you know, a, a family uh, would mentor them and, and try to help them, and you know, take them to services. And we're like, services? <laughs> we would like to not be Jews. <laughs> what took you back to Russia in the nineties? Um, so I went back to um, I, I emigrated to the U.S. when I was fourteen in nineteen eighty one, and. Ten years later, uh, I was already a journalist. I'd, I'd been working as a journalist for a number of years, uh, and um, I was—I could get an assignment to go to the Soviet Union because it was like everybody wanted something from the Soviet Union, so it was very easy to pitch a story and go. And I went, and I thought it was just going to be a story, mm-hmm. uh, and I just happened to speak the language, and it turned out to feel very 
weird to go there. It felt like home. Uh, and it got me really mad that I had been denied the right to be at home, to live at home, uh, just because I was Jewish. And, um, uh, and that, that's how I felt about it at the time. And um, also, in, in addition to feeling really comfortable there, I also felt it was the most exciting place in the world. And it was, you know, it was like the conversations that what people were having about what kind of state we should have and what should be the relationship between the individual and the state. And, um, you know, what's our national identity and how is that shaped? Um, and what's a democracy really? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. That was really yeah. amazing. So um, I just um, kind of stayed. Okay. You've written extensively about Putin. To what extent do you see journalism as a tool of activism or agitation? I think it's such an artificial distinction. Uh, and, um, you know, the origins of that distinction are that uh, in the 1920s and 30s, there was a group of American journalists who said, you know, journalism is a little bit uh, unrigorous. And this was, this, this was at the time when, when science was really sort of first coming into fashion uh, among, uh, among, among intellectuals. So they said, well, it's, you know, journalism should be more like science. Let's make it objective. And objective at the time meant that it should be evidence-based, that it should be replicable. So basically the conceit was, as with a scientific experiment, if you go, uh, if you feed the experiment, you'll get the same result. So if you go to all the same sources who are mentioned in the article and you ask them all the same questions, then theoretically you should get more or less the same story. Right? That's what objectivity in journalism means, or meant originally. And I think it's a very sound idea. And that's where we get the tradition, which I think is very important, of, you know, of having transparent sources, and having direct quotes, and having an explanation in the story of how the journalists came to know what the journalists came to know, which was something that you know, wasn't part of the journalistic tradition prior to that. The journalist was very much the expert and, and, and then the sort of the, the tribune rather than the reporter. How that devolved into this idea that the journalist has no subjectivity, I'm not quite sure, but I don't buy that idea at all, which is a roundabout way of answering your question. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, you, uh, uh, like, of course, uh, th this is what I do, and this is how I, uh, who I am, and what I want to say in the world and what I want to happen in the world comes through in what I write. Mm -hmm. You were sacked from your position of um, chief editor of a Russian science magazine for refusing to cover Putin's environmental propaganda. Um, I believe you refused to send a reporter on a hang gliding adventure. Um, and, and he called you and then you met up with him. Can you please tell us what happened there? That happened, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this, is, um, this is my best cocktail party story, but it's also, uh, it's also a little embarrassing because... Um, this was not one of those times when I was really taking a really great ethical journalistic stand. What actually happened was that I was editor of a popular science magazine, a very large one, and one of the oldest in the world. And, um, and the, the, the highest circulation uh, quality magazine in Russia. And um, Putin really liked the magazine. Mm -hmm. So he wanted his hang gliding adventure covered in the magazine. So the publisher called me and said, could you send a reporter? And I said, I don't think it's a good idea because, you know, I already have a story assigned. 
on this effort to repopulate the population of Siberian cranes. And um, if we, if I send a reporter, the reporter will see something that you don't want in the magazine that might get us in trouble. So let's just like not see anything. Whereas Popular Science magazine, we don't have to go there. Uh, and uh, I said, no, no, why don't you like send a reporter and then we just don't have to publish him. I said, no, that I can't do. If, if I send a reporter and the reporter sees something, then we have to publish it. And then you're not going to want it in the magazine. Then we're going to have a problem. He said, you're fired. So, <laughs> so I was fired. And I tweeted uh, that I was fired because of Putin. And... Uh, which was also... Uh, are there any Russian speakers in the audience? That was, uh, it was part of a sort of a flash mob uh, where people were putting these little rhymes on Twitter um, on, uh, where they would thank Putin for something like, uh, winter is over, summer is on its way, thank you Putin. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, um, so I was just very happy that I could put boards together in a rhyming fashion that would also, that also worked that way. So I'm leaving the magazine, thank you, Putin. And, um, and then a, there was a flurry of phone calls from media reporters. This was when Russia still had some, some independent media. And I told them what had happened. And then I went home and got drunk with my best friends because it was my, the best job I ever had. I really loved that job. So um, we commemorated it. And the next morning, uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I had to catch a flight, and um, then I was in a taxi, and then my phone rang, and then this guy said, please hang on, I'm going to connect you, and then I was hanging on, and I thought I'm in roaming, and, um, uh, and my workplace is no longer covering my bills, and I have no idea who I'm supposed to be connected to, and it was like two minutes into this waiting period, and then another person came on and said, don't hang up, I'm going to connect you right now, and I started screaming at him saying, I didn't ask to be connected to anybody. Would you at least introduce yourself? And he said, Putin, Vladimir Vladimirovich. Uh, so I screamed at Putin uh, before we had a conversation. And, um, but the moment he said, Putin, Vladimir Vladimirovich, I thought, well, this is obviously a prank. And it's going to be on YouTube, so I have to think of something really <laughs> witty to say. Um, this, you know, uh, three years later, Putin, uh, the pranksters called Elton John and said that they were Putin, and nobody believed except me and Elton John. Uh, but, um, but then, um, uh, then I was, I was sure it was a prank, and then this guy keeps going on, and he, he says, you know, my nature conservation efforts are very sincere, and uh, they should really be kept apart from politics, but that's very difficult for a person in my position. And I'm thinking, this guy is amazing. It's like he spent as much time in Putin's brain as I have. Uh, because at that point, I'd written a biography of Putin, so I, I'd, I'd like listened to everything that Putin had ever recorded uh, and read every interview over and over again. And I thought I had, you know, I had all his sort of turns of phrase and all his emotional devices down. And this guy was doing it like perfectly. And, and, and then he said. Um, he said, would you mind meeting and talking about it? And I said, well, okay, but like, how do I know you are who you say you are? And he started laughing and he said, um, well, when, when we get off the phone, you're gonna get a phone call from the deputy head of my administration and, uh, uh, and then he'll schedule a meeting and then I'll come to the meeting and then you'll know. <laughs> and that's what happened. Wow, and what was he like? Well, so 
I'd, I'd written this book, and the character that the book is about is not a very appealing guy, and um, also not a very interesting guy. He's a very mediocre, um, very, you know, with very little culture, very little education. And part of me felt like I had made this guy up. I mean, because I, I write books, right? So it's not like I was making him up, but I also felt like he was my character. I owned him a little bit. And, um, and I wanted him to come to life. I thought that would be really cool, like if he were a little different. Yeah. Uh, and if I could say, oh, well, this is what I didn't see. Um, and he was exactly as two-dimensional and, and, uh, <laughs> and uninteresting as the guy I wrote. And, uh, um, and the first thing he said to me was, I like kitties and puppies and little animals. By which he meant that he really does like nature. He's not faking it. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was, it was really disappointing because, uh, uh, I mean, it, it, it also confirmed some of my worst fears. He was not briefed on me. Right. He had no idea that I'd written this book. Uh, he, well, somebody would have had to tell him, right? And nobody wants to be the person who tells him. <laughs> uh, and, but he's isolated enough for the people around him to be able to pull that off. Because he doesn't actually use the internet, he doesn't actually get his own information, he doesn't have alternative sources of information. They can fight it all out, you know, before the information gets to him. Uh, my the one thing that was accomplished by my visit to the Kremlin was that they now have installed a bike rack at the Kremlin, because <laughs> they wouldn't let me bring my bike in. <laughs> But, um, but then I wrote about it, and then they put in a bike rack, and that was probably the last time anybody wrote their bike to the Kremlin. Change, Kremlin. change. <laughs> um, you've also written a book on Pussy Riot, who are fierce opponents of Putin and authoritarianism. Um, I interviewed Pussy Riot a few years ago for uh -huh. work, and I was very excited when they told me that anyone could be a member of Pussy Riot. Would you like to be in Pussy Riot? Well, see, the condition of, um, of being in Pussy Riot is that it's open membership, and it's anonymous. So I can't answer that question. Ah, good answer. They're genuine agitators of change, um, and, and you've met the girls when they were in prison. What was that experience like? Um, well, it was, it was a really fun book to write, because mostly I write books about people I don't like very much. Uh, but, um, and this was actually, it felt like, it didn't even feel like work. I wrote the book over the summer, um, and I reported it for three months before that. Um, it was really fast and fun. Right, um, and um, I really admired them. My my task was to figure out what makes people like that appear out of nowhere. I mean, they're really young, right? They um, they were uh, they they didn't exist before the Soviet Union collapsed, right? They um, they had a at the same time, they had a really deep understanding of what was happening culturally and politically, much deeper than my peers, deeper than I did. I mean, as, I, as I said earlier, they were faster to understand uh, what was happening in terms of this whole sort of traditional values uh, thing that I was very slow to grasp. Um, and, um, and they were very smart with how they analyzed and what they targeted, which is what they landed them in prison. You know, when they went to protest the symbiosis of church and state. Uh, the fact that they were protesting this, the way that they were protesting it, was just so insulting to, um, to the regime and the church that it landed them in prison. It's hard to believe now. Uh, they were arrested four years ago, and um, it was the first time that anybody got actual jail time in Russia for peaceful protest. 
And now it's like dozens and dozens of people every year. But, but they were really the beginning of an era, which was another reason that I wanted to write about them, because I, uh, you know, their, their case was, was symbolic and was a signal. Um, but when they were in prison at the same time, it was, it was horribly depressing. And I interviewed Nadia, uh, the sort of mastermind behind Pussy Riot, while she was, I think, at her lowest point uh, in the prison colony. She had gone in, uh, she's a philosopher, right? She was 22 years old, she was a philosopher student, uh, her project, she decided that it was going to be, uh, being in prison was going to be a project. Uh, and she wanted to be an ordinary inmate. She didn't want to be a celebrity inmate. She wanted to have the experience. And she really had the experience. And she found just how soul-destroying that experience was. Um, and we, uh, the, we had a four-hour interview at the prison, uh, which is very unusual. Right? I mean, they only get one visit every two months. So, and I was able to get in on one of those visits, uh, which was just an incredible stroke of luck. And, um, and she was just sinking into this deep repression. Uh, she figured out a few weeks after that that the, uh, there was a way out of it, that, there was a, uh, that she had to sort of claim her singularity and her role as an activist in order to, find, to fight her way out of that depression. But seeing her at that point when she, you know, she said, I don't want to um, do any more appeals because they break up the time. And if you break up the time, it feels like longer. And all I'm interested in is having it be monotonous so it goes faster. Pussy Riot stand for women's rights. And over the course of today, we've heard quite a lot about Western feminism. What are the issues concerning Russian women today? So uh, when I was, I've been asked a couple of times today what needs to change. And uh, my answer is the regime in Russia. Uh, but it, and you know that's the answer. Uh, the regime in Russia is—it's um, terrible for all people. Uh, it is, I think, especially terrible for queers and women. Uh, and um, the reason for that is because it's made traditional values its its mission. Traditional values, you know, whatever that means. But what that basically means is the subjugation of women and the annihilation of queers. Uh, and it's. It, and Putin sees it as his civilizational mission. So uh, when, when people talk about how he wants to recreate the Soviet Union, that's pretty inaccurate. That's not what he's trying to do. He sees Russia expanding, and he sees Russia expanding into this traditional value civilization. But this traditional value civilization can include many other countries. But the rhetoric that he's using to justify the war in Ukraine, you know, the intervention of Syria, all of that is rooted in this rhetoric of traditional values. Your most recent book is on the perpetrators of the Boston Marathon bombings, the Sanaya brothers, um, Tamerlan and Jahar. They're from the Caucasus region, which is in the southern part of the Russian Federation, and like yourself, basically their lives between Russia and the United States. What got you interested in the story of these two brothers? Um, so my, my oldest friend in the world called and said, you have to drop everything and write a book about the Sanaya brothers. That's what got me interested. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, I mean, she was the moment she called. I thought, oh my god, of course, like, of, uh, like obviously, um, uh, it, it, they were created for me to write about they, uh, because I'd written about both wars in Chechnya in the '90s and the 2000s, and I'd um, uh, I'd studied terrorism, and I'd been a Russian-speaking teenage immigrant in the Boston area, uh, which is what they were. Uh, 
And in a way, you know, the book is very much about uh, the, the immigrant experience and the precariousness of immigrants, uh, of a, a immigrant existence. Um, there's an assumption that, you know, they've been radicalised or brainwashed into jihadism, but obviously it, it's not so simple. Um, what do you believe is the seduction of terrorism? So, uh, so two things, right? Uh, first, the radicalization and the seduction, because I, um, I, I think the radicalization narrative is really wrong and dangerous. Uh, and, um, and the way it's wrong, it's, uh, you know, the, we, we think that there has to be something as huge behind terrorism as the fear that it inspires in us. Right? And that's why we imagine that there are these Organizations that are out to get the little children, you know, the, little, the innocent boys, and take them through the paces of radicalization. And if you listen to the FBI, the FBI will tell you that there's the pre-radicalization stage, and then the radicalization stage, and then the terrorism stage, as though there were a scenario and you could intervene in that scenario and change something. Uh, that's not the case. You know, uh, first of all, uh, most terrorists uh, that we know about are freelancers of some sort or another. Even the 9-11 bombers, they were freelancers. They pitched the 9-11 plot, which was sort of accepted by Al-Qaeda, and then they were affiliated with it. But you know, nobody dra- conscripted them and radicalized them. It was a very, uh, it was not just a two-way street, it was like a one-way street in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Boston bombers were affiliated with, with just the imaginary community uh, of international terrorism. They didn't have, as, at least as far as we know, any contact with anybody who might have guided them. Everything they found was online and wasn't put online by an organization that was trying to conscript somebody. Uh, so another reason that the, 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 narrative, the radicalization narrative is wrong is because radical beliefs are not a predictor of terrorism. Right? Uh, most people who hold radical beliefs don't commit acts of terrorism. Some people who commit acts of terrorism acquire their radical beliefs very recently. So that doesn't seem to be the thing that shaped them or you know, that got them. It's, it, it seems more like something that helped them get to a place where they were going, which is what gets us to the, to the issue of seduction. What I think it is is that when you are a nobody, you feel like a loser, you feel completely alienated from the state that you're living in, and nobody feels that more than immigrants do. You know, that you're no one in relationship to the state. There's a shortcut to two things that you long for most. One is a sense of belonging to something great. And another is being somebody. And not just anybody, but somebody who declares war on a great power. I mean, you get to go from being like a, a pothead, loser, teenager who's dropping out of college to an enemy combatant in nine seconds. And instead of being treated like a common criminal, you're treated like an enemy combatant. You will hear in court, as Jahar Tanayev did, you know, they attacked us. He should have been charged, I think, with killing people. They didn't attack the United States. He attacked three people who were killed and 264 people who were injured, which is an absolutely heinous crime. But it's quite a different crime than an attack on the American state. How can we address this? How can we change the rhetoric? Stop, stop thinking of it as a war. Think of it as a crime. You know, I mean, I think that... Uh, imagine another thing. Like, imagine um, 
for a second, just just a second. Imagine that you were one of the Charlie Hebdo massacre uh, participants. And then three days later, the leaders of the free world march information through the streets of Paris. You did that. You got them to do that. That gives you so much power. We should stop doing that. There's a lot of debate happening in Australia at the moment around same-sex marriage, um, and we would talk of having a, a plebiscite. Um, you're obviously a fighter for equality, but you're, you're not so down with the whole marriage thing, are you? Oh, my God. Um, so <laughs> every four years I come to Sydney and say something about same-sex marriage that then haunts me. Uh, <laughs> I, was, um, I was here four years ago, and uh, I... Um, I was on this panel at, uh, at Town Hall, and um, I said, well, we're not, uh, it was a panel of queer writers, and I said, well, we're not really going to like, spend an hour and a half talking about whether we should have the right to marry, right? That's a no-brainer. Let's talk about whether marriage should exist. It shouldn't. Uh, and uh, uh, So a year later, the right-wing media in the U.S. picked it up, and uh, the headline was, a homosexual activist reveals true gay agenda. <laughs> and then the next day, the Russian media picked it up. And I became enemy number one of the Russian Orthodox family. So um, I, can pr I probably can't top that, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm basically uh, still yeah, of the opinion that we need to re-examine marriage uh, I think that if we want the state involved in regulating personal relationships, which I think has some uses, I mean, contracts have uses. We enter into contracts for much lesser reasons than uh, you know, raising kids, um, like rental contracts. Uh, but you know, I think we should have the option of doing that. But I don't think it should be connected to romantic love. I don't think that uh, uh, I don't think it should be limited to two people, and I don't think it should be eternal. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> uh, when um, uh, when my partner and I got married, <laughs> uh, um, and this is the thing, marriage is uh, marriage can be very useful. Um, and um, she needed a green card. I mean that the right to same-sex marriage in the United States made the difference between. Uh, safety and lack of safety from my family. It's not nothing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but um, uh, we, we came to the US, we, we got married, uh, and uh, we told everybody it was a green card marriage, and we asked everybody to wear green. <laughs> and then, of course, we, uh, we applied for, uh, for the green card, and I thought, oh my god, how are we going to explain the fact that, first of all, I'm on record opposing marriage, and second of all, we told everybody it was a green card marriage. Uh, but of course, you know, the immigration officials weren't interested in that at all. They were interested in my partner's arrest record because she'd been arrested at protests in Moscow. So anyway, um, when we were getting married, we were talking, we asked, uh, yeah, so first this wonderful rabbi volunteered to marry us. And, I, uh, and there's like a, year, a line for a year and a half to get married by her, but she was willing to officiate at our wedding. And I said, thank you, but I don't believe in God and I don't believe in marriage, so probably a waste of your time. <laughs> and, um, and then I remember that, I, uh, that we, uh, my editor's husband 
has an online record, uh, license, you know, license that he obtained online that allows him to officiate. So I asked him to officiate. And then my partner and I said that we didn't want to say vows. So, well, that's not possible. You have to say vows. And she said, she's from Russia, um, she said, well, what do vows usually say? And he said, well, you know, for rich or for poor. And she said, seriously? <laughs> yeah, you people actually say that? Because that's really not the way we were brought up. I mean, we were sort of brought up to think that, that relationships are conditional. And, um, and so we said, well, can we say that uh, we're getting married and we will stay together as long as we love each other and we'll both make an effort to make that last long, as long as possible? And he said, no, you can't. <laughs> because that's not a binding contract. So this is like, you know, we enter into all sorts of contracts, but only one contract requires us to promise something that we cannot deliver. You know, it actually requires us to lie from the word go. Are you able to tell us about your family structure? And in addition to the, the, you know, the changes in those vows, what kind of laws would um, be best for your family? Right. So uh, at the moment... My family is constituted uh, as follows. I mean, this is the, the, the household is constituted this way. Uh, my uh, my partner and I, our three kids, the oldest of whom is adopted. The, I had the second one, and she had the third one. Uh, my ex-partner, uh, who is a co-parent for the older two kids, uh, and a buddy to the youngest one. Uh, a male nanny who has lived with us off and on since my daughter was born 14 years ago and uh, you know, for years at a time. So he's hanging around now again because he's also a refugee um, from Russia after getting beaten up one too many times. Uh, and he's not a parent figure, but he's very much um, a, an, a, an adult confidant figure and an, an adult source of comfort for the older kids. Um, and we have a couple... Uh, from St. Petersburg, who are also refugees living in the rental apartment downstairs, uh, and they have a four-year-old, and we have a four-year-old, and they share in childcare. So that's the household. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, and the, with the exception of the people downstairs, uh, we you know we have meals together, and uh, we, you know we're together in, in some ways. But um, what I would really like to do is be able to have like a time-limited contract between different co-parents. I think it would make a lot of sense for the three of us who are involved in raising the teenagers to have a contract that would expire when the teenagers become adults. But, uh, but there are only two of us involved in raising the toddler. So, you know, we could have a contract for that. Yeah. Uh, and it would reflect reality. And it would also... Uh, I mean, this is obviously not, like... Uh, once, once you get into this, you realize that this is not... Uh, a model that you could replicate, right? <laughs> we would have to be coming up with all sorts of different configurations. But those configurations need to be recognized. Because one of the things that, was, that were really traumatic for my kids when we left Russia was that this entire uh, edifice that we had constructed there as well, all these people were in their lives there, you know, that was being destroyed because we, uh, only the nuclear family could go. And so they, they, left, uh, they lost one of their parents for two years. My ex-partner just joined us about six months ago. But until then, they were separated uh, from, from their co-parent. Um, and before that, you know, we'd been, we broke up 10 years ago, but um, they would, uh, she, she drove them to school in the morning, and they would go to her house in the afternoon before coming home around supper time. That was their routine. So they lost 
a member of the family when they immigrated. Yeah. So please join me in thanking our guests.